0: My wife and I recently, actually just like two weeks ago and a little bit of last week, were out on the East Coast. We're spending time with relatives, and it wasn't really a vacation. By that I mean, uh, not that it was like, you know, frustrating or, or just one of those burdensome trips with relatives. Uh, we had some family members that were going through a real hard time. So this was us flying out to try to serve them, we hoped to offer some little pieces of advice here and there that they could find useful, but mostly just to be there, to be a presence in their lives when they're going through a real hard time. Now, we, we enjoy doing that, although it's not a real happy time. We want to do that. However, if you've been in that situation, and I'm sure you have, it can be a little straining after the first few days so after a few days of that, and especially a week, uh, even though we want to be there for family, we find ourselves looking forward to coming back home here to Albuquerque. So home for us is both a place, a refuge, a house, but it's also just Carla and I, it's just each other. We found ourselves longing for just that time with that special person. So for you, maybe that's a spouse, maybe it's a, one or two children. And whether it's vacation or it's that kind of a trip, I am... Trusting you've got some of the same feelings, that you're away, even if it's on vacation. And after a few days or a week, you find yourself thinking, I think I'm starting to be ready to go back home, both that place and that person. Well, we'll return to this question, but where is our home spiritually? And what is our relation to this earth around us? So that's part of what our task is this morning. The book of Ecclesiastes is out to teach us more than one thing, probably two, three, four things. If you remember, the guy who wrote this, we're going to call the preacher. And that's because he calls himself this in the very first verse of the book. So when we talk about the preacher, that's the author of this book. Here's one thing that we'll learn of these three or four that he's out to teach us. And we'll see it in today's passage. There is no surplus... And there is no profit by the end of your life. Death levels everything. How's that for a depressing thought? No profit, no surplus. You don't get to pass anything on, even to inheritors down the road. Our author will despair in that too. Death levels everything. But here's the point of that. Look beyond what is under the sun. So we'll review in a minute what that phrase, under the sun, means. If you've got a Bible, open up with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And we'll start in the middle of that chapter, uh, in a minute, verse 16. Before we do that, let's do a little bit of review. So a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, Ryan started this sermon series, and he looked at some key words or phrases that are in the book of Ecclesiastes, things that come up again and again. So one of those key words is vanity. Vanity. Uh, If you like taking notes in your bulletin, this is the time to start doing that. If you were to write one word next to vanity, write the word nothingness. So Ryan went through these. He said, vanity doesn't mean being vain in the sense of arrogant or conceited. Think maybe of the phrase in vain. So, man, I worked so hard, and it was all in vain. What do we mean by that? Uh, We don't mean it was in arrogance. We mean it was for nothing. I did all that work, and it was pointless. It came to nothing. So Ryan mentioned this Hebrew word means a mist or a vapor, but think of the concept in term even of nothingness. A second expression found in the book is striving after the wind. And if you were to write one word here, perhaps write the word futility. Can you grasp the wind physically? No, there's no way you can do it. And maybe part of the meaning here, too, is understanding the wind. Can we understand it? No, we really can't. It's not visible. We can't see it. We don't know where it came from. It's constantly changing. So in both senses, striving after the wind is really futility, perhaps even frustration. And then a third and final key phrase is this expression, under the sun. And if you remember what Ryan said, I like it a lot. What Ryan said was... This means life in this fallen world. So if you're new to Christianity or perhaps a very new Christian, the fall might seem like a strange expression. What we're talking about is Adam and Eve's rebellion, their rejection of God and what God said. We call that the fall, falling from God's perfect communion and grace. And that brought in sin, and death, and sickness. And did it bring in those three things just kind of a little bit here and there, we kind of have to search to find them? No, they're pervasive. They're all over the place. They're all around us. We can't avoid them or escape them. In fact, they're inside of us. So here's an example of where all three of these key words or phrases occur in the same verse. Usually they occur by themselves, but uh, to show you how they're all in one verse, uh, let me just read to you, Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse 11. Uh, don't necessarily have to turn there. It'll come up on the screens. The preacher says, "I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity there's one of our key terms and a striving after the wind." There's our second key expression. And there was nothing to be gained. Under the sun, there's our third key expression, meaning not life everywhere in the whole universe, but in this fallen world, things are certainly depressing and pointless, if that's all that we look at. So we've done a review of keywords. Let's do one more review. As Ryan mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes, there are a number of expressions that will introduce an investigation. So it's kind of clear when the preacher is investigating or or examining things and coming up with an observation and and I'll give you a list of these words up on the uh, in a chart on the screen maybe just write one or two when you come across them they're kind of obvious once they're pointed out so here are these words or expressions the preacher might say I have seen or I saw or he might say I looked or I looked again or I said to myself or I said in my heart that's going to introduce some kind of reflection or observation or I searched, or I considered, or I turned my heart or my mind, depending upon what translation you have, to know. And then he's going to explain what he set his mind to think about. When we've got a section introduced by one of these, I'm going to call it an observation. Our text, or the first section we'll look at, the last part of chapter 3, starts with one of these. Um, So as I read this, I'll point these phrases out, and I'll point out, the three key words or phrases as well. So let me read to you last part of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting at verse 16. The preacher says, Moreover, I saw, there it is, there's our expression that introduces some kind of observation, under the sun, there's one of our key phrases, right? Life in this fallen world. That in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, there's another phrase that introduces some kind of observation God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. Man, a time for every matter and every work should remind you of last week, if you were here, the passage that Asher preached on. Verse 18 I said in my heart, there's another observation phrase, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see. That they themselves are but beasts. Men are just animals. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Another of those three key words or phrases. All go to the same place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes downward into the earth. It's a rhetorical question, it's kind of like, we don't know what happens after death. So I saw, another one of our observation phrases, that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Another rhetorical question, the answer is, we don't know what happens after man dies. So, the whole passage starts with, I saw, that means it's an observation. I'm going to call this observation, naturalism is hopeless. What is naturalism? I think you know what it is. It kind of defines itself, just this natural world. What is around us, what we see, and that there is nothing more, or at least nothing more that we can know. That seems to be the perspective of the preacher in these verses. Now, there is some biblical wisdom that the preacher gets right. But he looks at only one side of the coin and not the other. He looks at one extreme and not the other. And that's what happens when you look at life under the sun, this fallen world. You're focusing on that. That's all you're looking at, not God and his perspective. Let's look at just two verses, the middle of our passage, verse 20 and 21. I'll read those again, verse 20. I'll go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. Now there's some truth in those verses. And the preacher is drawing that from the book of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 2, we read that God created man from the dust of the earth. Same Hebrew word here in Ecclesiastes. And then there's a better verse even in chapter 3, the one he's certainly thinking of, one that modern-day preachers use when they're doing graveside burial services, and it kind of goes something like this. From the dust, man came, and to the dust, man will return. So there's one sense in which the preacher's right here. But listen to what the prophet Daniel says at the end of the Old Testament period, centuries after the time of Solomon. Don't turn there, maybe just look at it on the screen or listen to me read it. Here's what Daniel says in chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, same Hebrew term in Ecclesiastes, where did the preacher pull it from? Genesis 3. Here's what Daniel says. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Daniel says there is hope after life for those who worship the one and true God. In fact, this idea of coming up out of the dust or out of the earth or out of the grave is a symbol of resurrection. Isaiah will use it. Daniel used it of bodily resurrections. Isaiah will use it of the resurrection of a city, the symbolic rebirth of the city Jerusalem. So again, maybe don't turn here, but just listen or look upon the screens In Isaiah 52, we we read this in the first verse or two. Isaiah says, Awake! Awake and put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust, same word, and arise. Arise. And then be seated, perhaps on thrones, uh, but a symbol of rest and authority, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Man, great resurrection imagery there, although we're talking, again, not about bodily resurrection, but the rebirth, the resurrection of a city. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and try to reconstruct what the preacher's thinking about here. Uh, So was man taken from the dust, and does man have an affinity with the earth? Yes, of course. Um, Did God create both human beings and animals, and do they have some similarities on some level? Well, yes, of course. But does that mean they're exactly the same? No, of course not. Again, the preacher is giving us just one side of the coin, one extreme, because the other side, the other truth is that God created men unique in a relationship with him. In fact, we're made in God's image, something that is not said of the animals. So there's something radically different about human beings versus animals that is also taught in the book of Genesis. As human beings, we like to gravitate toward extremes. So again, here's the extreme the preacher presents. In life under the sun, we're no different than animals. After all, Genesis 3 says we're from the dust, we go back to the dust. It doesn't say anything about afterlife. God creates the animals as well. Maybe in this earth all we can do, says the preacher, as he looks at life under the sun, is derive some little pleasure out of our work, and then it's done. And then the preacher says all is meaningless. And that all certainly shows us he's thinking in extremes. This, let me warn you, is one of the sources, not the only one, but one of the sources of depression and anxiety. Meaning what? Thinking in extremes. And your thought may even start with the biblical truth, but you're exaggerating it, you're twisting it a little bit, and you're forgetting about other parts of the Bible. So in this extreme, the preacher says, man, maybe we're just like the animals, But the book of Daniel says there is much more, there is meaning, there is a certainty to afterlife that God gives us, and the New Testament does this a hundred times more than the book of Daniel. In the New Testament, we read about the glorious picture of the new heavens and the new earth, about life for us as the people of God, a community bought with the blood of Christ, who live with him and worship him forever. So one of the teachings of the book of Ecclesiastes is certainly this. Long for, I love what C.S. Lewis called it, the heavenly country. Long for the heavenly country. And know that your home is not this earth. So, all right, we're ready for the next section. We've got to move along. Uh, Look at chapter four of Ecclesiastes. And once again, you're going to see some terms of observation, and you'll see the passage start with one of these terms for observation. In fact, you'll see those terms like I saw several times, but this doesn't mean several observations. It's all the same one because it all has to do with work. So as I read, I'll try to accent the terms of observation, the I saw parts, but I'll also pause and do a little sidebar to point out uh, the expressions for work or the synonyms, the little pool of words that the preacher uses to talk about work. So let's dive into chapter 4. Again, I saw, there's our term of expression, all the oppressions. Now, you might not think of work, but if work is activity, it's labor, you're doing something. Uh, When one person oppresses another, that is work, certainly in the preacher's mind. So we're going to kind of circle that word, so to speak, as one of the words about work or activity in this passage. I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Hey, there's one of our three words or terms, right? And behold, the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there was power, but there was no one to comfort them, the oppressed. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done. Here we've got some more work expressions. Deeds that people do under the sun. There's one of our expressions again. Verse 4. Then I saw, another observation expression, all the toil and all the skill in work Both of those are work expressions, toil or labor, and then skill and work. That they come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. His idea that everywhere I look, people do their work out of envy. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Folds his hands is the opposite of work. We'll talk about that in a minute. So that fits if we're circling, so to speak, words about work or labor. Folding hands, and that's the opposite. That's no work. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil, there's a work term, and a striving after wind. Verse 7, again, I saw, one of our observation phrases, vanity under the sun. You know what those two are by now. Verse 8, one person who has no other, neither a son nor a brother, uh, yet there is no end to all his toil, another work term, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling? Yet another work term, and depriving myself of pleasure. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. We're going to call this whole section an observation that work is hopeless. First section, naturalism is hopeless. This one is all about work. And the preacher is saying work is completely hopeless, completely pointless. So let's jump into this by looking at verse 5, something in the middle here. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That sounds kind of odd, so let's make that a starting point. The folding of the hands is a real common expression in Hebrew writings, especially wisdom writings, for, I've already said this, the lack of work. Look at Proverbs 6, verse 10, up on the screens. In Proverbs 6, we read this. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. And then if you look that up at home later today, you'll see what follows from that is poverty. Comes from that kind of laziness. So what does to fold mean? Well, to fold, you know what that means. Take one thing, lay it over another thing so that it overlaps. So if you fold a piece of paper, take in half of that paper, laying it over the other half so that they overlap. So in this verse in Proverbs 6, I think it means the fool is laying down and he's doing with his hands and arms this thing. He's wrapping a cloak or a blanket around him to keep warm. So they're folding, they're overlapping. Uh, But we also could think of somebody standing up, even in our culture and time and day, if somebody folds their hands, unless they're cold, That's a symbol of defiance, kind of, isn't it? Like, no, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to stay here and not act. I'm going to be defiant and independent. So being foolish in the Bible can mean several things. Here it focuses on the lack of working. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes 4, verse 5. The fool folds his hands and he eats his own flesh. Well, what about the second half of that verse? What in the world does that mean? The second half is using exaggerated or emphatic language. If the fool will not work, he's not going to eat. Or to put it in extreme language, if he wants to eat, he'll have to cut off his own arm and grill the muscle or the flesh to eat, to be graphic and you know a little bit gross. We would word it this way. The fool would have to eat his own flesh. Hebrew doesn't like those helping words, would have to, before the main verb eat. So Hebrew says, man, instead of four words, would have to eat, Hebrew just likes conciseness, directness, even bluntness. So that's why we just have, he eats his own flesh. Well, he doesn't do that literally. But the idea is, that's what he'd have to do. So let's look at what the preacher says. The preacher says, not working, well, that makes no sense at all, because you'll starve, So not working is vanity, but in the whole rest of the passage, he's saying that work is vanity and a striving after the wind, which is a way of saying everything in terms of the topic of work is meaningless. Let's go back and work through this section quickly. Chapter 4 starts with oppressions. We saw in verse 1 our key phrase, under the sun. So in a fallen world, the preacher says it's easy to look around and see there's oppression everywhere. Everywhere, look, there are people in power using and abusing people that are not in power. It kind of doesn't matter if it's direct or indirect to the preacher. Let me give you an example of where it's kind of hard to decide. Back in the 1990s, the, the mega shoe and sports apparel company Nike got into a lot of trouble in the media. And if you were alive then, like I was, you'll remember this uh, if you follow stories in the news here in this country. Um, They got in trouble because news reporters went overseas to their factories in places like Vietnam and Indonesia and later on in China. And and these reporters saw the conditions of the workers, even children in what were called sweat factories, uh, making shoes for Nike. Now, in a little bit of fairness to Nike, They weren't their factories, they contracted. So these were owned in those countries um, and Nike didn't own the factories, but I think you gotta discount that because all a Nike rep would have to do is travel uh, and then tell the guy who runs the factory, hey, you're only making shoes. We're paying all your bills uh, and you're making money off us. It's our contract that is your contract. It's not one of many. So you've gotta improve conditions well, we're not going to let you make shoes for us anymore. And they didn't do that. So things are a little better, 20 or 30 years now, I guess probably a lot better to be fair. Um, but back then, you had people, including children, using extremely hot glue, using press machines with little and often no protective uh, stuff on their hands or their head or their eyes. There were no benefits. Uh, the pay was much less than a dollar an hour. And again, some of the people working were literally children, not, not even young adults. Now, was this intentional direct oppression? Well, maybe not. I mean, you could imagine a scenario in which uh, a person running a factory in, in one of these countries comes to Nike and says, Hey, we can convert to making shoes. We'll do it for 1 20th the cost of what it would cost you in the States. Uh, Let us make your shoes. We'll we'll make them to the correct quality. And the Nike administrator says, yeah, let's try that for a year and never visits the factory. So maybe that's indirect oppression. The preacher says it doesn't matter. It's all the same. The guy at Nike is at fault for this, whether it's direct and intentional or indirect. So to the preacher, everything around him is oppression. Then he tacks on another thought in verse 4. Then I saw that all toil... And all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So if you've got any doubt that the preacher is thinking in extremes, this verse should put that doubt to rest because we've got the word all twice. The preacher is saying everything is vanity. Now that's not true. Not all work around us is in vain. But the preacher is thinking in an extreme as he looks at life, under the sun. So, all comes from envy. To use the Nike illustration, the preacher might say, okay, even if I give the guy the benefit of the doubt, the big wig at Nike wasn't directly oppressing people, he's not doing this to make the world a better place. He's only doing this to bury his competitors and to make money. He's doing this out of envy. So, if... If you argue with me about the direct oppression thing, it doesn't matter because I'll win the argument on the next and final stage, the motivation for the administrators, the top-level guys at Nike. So let's do some concluding before we hit our last section. In the first section, the end of chapter 3, we saw that the preacher is thinking and talking and writing and teaching in extremes. He wants to take us along a certain thought process to show us, in part, how that's not good. Here, in chapter 4, in verse 5, he hits one extreme, the fool that folds his hands, and he says, well, that's hopeless. If we want to escape work and the the rat race of the market, uh, can I have that option of just not working? Well, no, I'll starve and cause my family to starve. And the rest of the chapter, or this section of chapter 4, is about the meaninglessness of work. Then in verse 7, he adds one more to spare. He notes that those who amass riches, they have no assurance that after they die, they'll leave those riches as a legacy for some inheritor after them. So again, the preacher ends the section with the V word. It's vanity, it's nothingness, it's meaningless. In our first section on naturalism, there were two antidotes. For naturalism. Let me give those to you. One was realizing that you're drawn into an extreme. Realize that, that you're starting to think, you're starting to walk down that path of one extreme, which even might have some biblical basis to it, and you're ignoring other parts of the Bible. What's the antidote for that? Look at other parts of the Bible, like what Daniel says, or the New Testament, what that says. In Solomon's day, they didn't have a full-fledged A fully developed theology of what happens at the resurrection. So, what about the second antidote? Well, the second antidote is realize that there is more than life under the sun. So, we would say realize that we've got a hope in the new heavens and the new earth, that like Christ was resurrected, we will rise from the dust. In the earth and the grave, those of us who believe in the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection, those of us who have followed him, who identify with that death and burial and resurrection of Christ, we have that hope too. So don't do what the preacher says in most of the book, or many parts of the first half of the book, which is look at life under the sun. I'll talk at the end of the sermon about why he might do that, why he might say to us, Look at this earth and only look at this earth. So we're ready for the second part of chapter four. What we're going to note that is different in this section is that we're not going to have phrases that talk about observations. So you're not going to see words like I saw or I turned my heart to know or I considered. In fact, this is going to sound a lot like the book of Proverbs. So let's read uh, chapter four. I'll read it for you starting at verse nine. Two are better than one. Wow, that sounds like a proverb, doesn't it? It actually is. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. Ah, toil. There's a work term again. So it's going to continue some thought from the passage we just had, the first half of chapter 4. Verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him And a threefold cord. Wow, that is not quickly broken, which means that's really, really strong. Three people. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth then an old and foolish king, who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went, I think this is the youth, from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Those are some of our key terms again. So instead of an observation, like I said, this really is wisdom. And so we're going to call this wisdom that work is not completely hopeless. So you're filling the blank there is the really long multisyllable word, not, N-O-T, three letters, real easy for you. Man, this is going to be surprising and show us That the preacher thinks in extremes, but then he'll qualify it and show us that that's not reality. That's not life in the whole universe. That's not life in God's perspective. That's our temptation as we see and interact with the world around us. So this last section starts with, like I said, a proverb. Two are better than one. Then we've got three illustrations where the preacher is going to show us that that's true. That's actually a valid form of work. Being a second person, a helper to someone else. So these three illustrations are going to center around a journey that two people take. And in the ancient Near East and the land of Israel, you didn't journey by train or plane or even car. Or for the vast majority of people, even a horse or a donkey, you journeyed by walking. So we're talking about two people that are taking a hike for dozens of miles in the country. So here are the three illustrations, if I could paraphrase them. If one person falls, the other can lift him up. The Boy Scouts have a, a rule called the buddy system. When you go hiking, you never go hiking alone. I do that when I go hiking in the mountains. There's a guy in church that I go hiking with when I hike in the mountains and here in New Mexico. I've never fallen down a ravine and broken my ankle. But if I did, I'd want my hiking buddy there with me. I've never been bitten by a rattlesnake, but I've walked around a rattlesnake. If I ever got bit by one, I would not want to be alone. I've never been mauled by a bear or a mountain lion, though I've seen them. If I ever did get mauled, I would not want to be alone. So there's a lot of good wisdom here in this two is better than one. So much so that the preacher goes on to two more illustrations. If the first one is about falling down, and by the way, it's probably about more than physically falling down. Many commentators think, and I think they're right, that this is not just hiking. It applies 100 times more to when someone has, say, cancer or they're going through marital problems or there's a family member or a close friend going through some hard times, like what Carla and I experienced a week or two ago. They need a second person to lift them up. So if that's the first illustration, the second one has to do with temperature. Um, If one's cold, a second person can keep that first person warm. So you may not know this, uh, but the human body is in our core temperature, has a pretty limited range. Uh, If our brains get 105 degrees, which is only 5 degrees or so, roughly above our regular body temperature, uh, we will start to die. If our body temperature, not temperature outside, our core temperature, falls down to 95, which is only five degrees less than what we usually have as a temperature, guess what? We start to die. It's a pretty limited range. So what this part of the verse is saying is that if two people are traveling, we don't care if it's man-man, and they run into hazardous conditions where it's so cold you could die. And keep in mind, in Solomon's day, they don't have down sleeping bags ready to negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. They just got a cloak. And it's going to save your life. You're going to buddy up physically with somebody and sleep next to them and wrap those, whatever cloth you've got around both of you. Two are better than one and could save your life. The third illustration is two people walking on a journey, but then they're attacked. And if I could paraphrase this, basically it goes along these lines. If there's one person, one traveler that gets attacked, the attacker could easily prevail. And you could imagine why, the attacker is gonna have a weapon, he plans this out, the traveler doesn't plan on being attacked usually. The attacker could have the element of surprise, come up and pretend he's a friend, and then three feet away, pull out a knife. If you're traveling alone, there's a good chance when you get attacked, the attacker wins. But the verse says, if there are two of you, there's a good chance you will prevail over the attacker. And if there are three, like a rope made of three strands, that's really strong. You stand an excellent chance then. So this is a whole new direction for the preacher. And he's qualifying what he has said before. There is work that is worthwhile. And it's the kind of work where you help someone up who has fallen. That's good work, and it's not vanity. So that leaves us with only one story left. And it's kind of a hard story to understand. But I think this also teaches the value of work. Let's read that story one more time, starting at verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. The old and foolish king no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun. So again, Here's an observation made about the way things work in this world. Along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all these people that followed the youth because he was so wise. He became king for being poor. Yet those who come later, so this is after the youth, his kingship passes. They will not rejoice in him and surely that is vanity and a striving after wind. We've got two characters in this story. We'll call them the Kid but this doesn't mean like a 10-year-old. This is more like a young man, but a youth. And the king. And then we've got three pairs of character qualities that are pitted against each other. I'll try to show it to you on a chart here. So first we've got young versus old. In that culture, young meant inexperienced. And old should mean experienced, respected, someone you'd come to for advice. That's the way it should work second pair of qualities is poor versus wealthy. Let's look at poor being first. The kid here isn't poor. He is really, really poor. And here's why I say that. We've got this term prison, don't we? It seems like that introduces yet another quality that he was a criminal. He committed a crime, but I don't think so. I think it's an example of his poverty, and here's why. In the ancient Near East, they did not use prisons to punish people for crimes. So did they punish people for crimes? Oh, yeah, they did. But they did it a lot more graphically than we do. So they didn't believe in, you know, spending a million dollars per inmate over the course of his or her lifetime. Uh, They punished people by killing them. Or there's another option, and that is that you don't put them in a cell, again, that costs money, but you publicly shame them and take away rights for the rest of their lives, and everyone in the community knows it. So whether you agree with either of those or not, it doesn't matter. That's the way it happened in the ancient Near East. Prisons were used for a different purpose. We might call them debtors' prisons or labor camps or work camps. So you got put in prison because you owed money or your father or a relative owed money because they could put your family in prison too. And you would work for, let's say, a company like Nike, you'd work for a company... And that company, instead of paying you wages, would pay your creditor, the person you owed the money to. Uh, You could spend your whole life and still not pay that debt off and always be in prison, meaning in a labor camp. So this youth was so poor, whether he incurred the debt or his father or brother, he was in prison. But I think we can read a little bit between the lines and see that he was wise, disciplined, a hard worker, And it didn't take him his whole life to pay that debt off. He got out of debtor's prison. In fact, he was so wise that he became king. Now, the other side of poverty is wealth. The king is already wealthy. What should you do with wealth in ancient Israel? Well, in ancient Israel, you use wealth to help others. And if you're rich and you don't have to work 70 hour work weeks, you use your open time to study the scriptures and grow in wisdom. Did the king do that? Certainly not the second, because we read he didn't care about taking advice anymore. So this proverb says that it's possible to be young and poor, even somebody coming out of debtor's prison, and be wise. And it's possible to be old and wealthy and foolish. And clearly there's worth in being young and poor but wise. And you can get wisdom regardless of your economic status or your age. Isn't that a great thing? You don't have to wait and achieve some status in society before you start learning wisdom. So just like the preacher said in verse 9, two are better than one, and that meant helping others, uh, here the work that is good is growing in wisdom. Now, The preacher does end on a negative note. So look at the very last verse or two of chapter four. Even though the youth was so disciplined in our story that he became king and had a lot of people who enjoyed his kingship, after the youth, now king, grows old and dies, the preacher says this. What I see in the world around me is all the good that that king did, the next guy is going to be wicked. Or if not the next guy, two guys down the road. And they're going to undo Everything that the good king did, isn't this all meaningless and vanity, says the preacher. And we would say, yeah, from the perspective of life on this earth, it is. But the preacher also says, because we're trying to avoid being at that extreme, growing in wisdom and using it to teach others is worthwhile, does have value, does please the Lord. And this is what the youth did. So even though the preacher ends on a bad note, he still extols these two proverbs. Two are better than one, and it's better to be young and poor but wise than old and rich and foolish. So what do we do with this kind of depressing view of the world? Remember what it is. There's no surplus. There's no profit at the end of your life. Death death levels, everything. We look beyond what is under the sun. If a preacher wants to create hope, in what C.S. Lewis calls the heavenly country, he can do that in one of two ways. First, that preacher can paint a glorious picture of heaven. Does the preacher in Ecclesiastes do that? No, he does not. Because there's a second way that God can create hope in us, and that is the preacher can paint an ugly picture of life in this world, and that's exactly what he does. And one of his purposes is to help us see how ugly the world is so that we will hope in the second coming of Christ and our own resurrection to be with him in our own life forever with the son of god and that we will value the wisdom god gives us to use while we walk this earth so this is not only about hoping in life after death and just surviving and enduring this world at the end of chapter 4 and in other parts in ecclesiastes The preacher gives us hope and wisdom in fearing God and following him in our lives now. So how do we use this? We long for our true home, which is not this earth. Let me close with a quote from Jonathan Edwards, written back in in 1733, part of a sermon he preached then, but just as true today, and certainly biblical thoughts. Edwards says this, What Christians confess of themselves is that they are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They seek another country as their home. In confessing that they are strangers, they plainly declare that this is not their country. This is not the place where they are at home. And in confessing themselves to be pilgrims, they declare plainly that this is not their settled abode but that they have respect to some other country which they seek and to which they are traveling. Fellow travelers, let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and let's fix our eyes on the glorious hope of his second coming and our life together forever with him in our true home, our true place, with the one who holds our soul and our minds and our hearts' desire, Jesus himself. Please pray with me. Father, we're thankful for 2 Peter 3.13, which says, We are looking for new heavens and a new earth. Help us to see what the preacher wants us to see, which is the meaninglessness of life under the sun, the ugliness even of what happens so often in the workplace but help us see meaning beyond what is under the sun. Help us to see meaning in a life lived forever with Christ after death. And help us see not just that, but help us to see meaning and purpose in what your Holy Spirit does now in the middle of this ugly and dark and evil world. As you, Lord, work in and through your church and your people, And as you're doing now, this hour even, in songs and through these scriptures, we thank you for that work, that wisdom of God, that name and person and work of Jesus. And what is happening not only after our death as believers, but now as you work in our lives on this earth. Thank you for the hope that you give us even through such depressing verses in the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for the hope of the name of Jesus.